Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I'm Tobias, and I'm back again with Yusi. What's up? Hey, Tobias. All good here. I'm dividing my time nowadays between building the house, I think I've mentioned that perhaps a few times, working remotely, of course, like everybody else. Uh, The gyms are open again, so I get to visit the gym again. And then I took up a new hobby to do Microsoft certification exams. And I decided I will just do like one sector at a time. So I'm progressing through the Power Platform search now. And that's been interesting because I wouldn't say they're technical. It's more business and functionality. But at times, especially when you're preparing for the exam and reading through a lot of the source material, there's a lot of old school Dynamics 365 stuff. And it looks so much like old school SharePoint. And I don't really like either nowadays. But I I think that's mostly what's top of mind. I wake up in the morning, I think about Power Platform or the house or the gym or work. That's mostly it. Well, if if your new hobby is about taking exams for the Power Platform, you might expect, you know, some dynamics, some SharePoint and some similarities and here and there. But it's it's an interesting hobby for sure. Perhaps not the one I would pick. <laughs> this this might not be too long-lasting hobby, but I aim to keep this up for a couple of more weeks to finalize everything I have in Power Platform side, and then hopping to a new hobby of doing different sort of search. So how about for you? So I'm, I'm not doing certifications at the moment. I think the last one that I took was actually the AZ500, the security one for Azure. I might have done one or two after that, which is more developer-oriented, the, you know, the fundamentals. Definitely looking at taking some exams, but that's a different story. So for me, What I've been up to is I celebrated my birthday over the weekend, uh, and that was good fun. So with my family, I had a a couple of friends coming over, and we were sitting outside with the adequate distance and all this stuff. But it makes you realize how much you miss seeing people in person under normal circumstances. Ideally, on a normal birthday or a get-together with friends and family, we would get everyone in, into the house or into the apartment or wherever we are. And, you know, have a good time, but now we have to adjust and just so happened to be the only day this month where the winds were so strong that everything on the table outside literally blew away. That was yesterday. And that's when we had people over. So kind of a bad timing, but, you know, at times at these, you kind of missed it. The in-person events are important, at least to me, I miss seeing people and this is not uh, related to a birthday. This is in general, like going to a conference. Usually we'd meet up at the conference, maybe go for some dinner, have a drink, talk a bit, you know, network. Same thing with friends. So I really hope this is turning up, uh, turning soon. So we're getting back to these, you know, more the human side of IT as well. Everything we do now is remote and there are many benefits to that. Uh, we can pretty much schedule everything around it, but still miss the human factor. So hopefully that will turn around. So that's my realization 
again after the weekend having a birthday party, which perhaps was not under the best weather circumstances. This brings me back to one of the discussions we had months ago. Uh, so we've been doing this podcast for more than a year and a half, but less than two years now. And I still vividly recall when we were doing some of these planning discussions for the podcast. And I think I said, yeah, so let me fly over to Sweden and we'll meet up and we'll do like five session recordings in one afternoon. And then we do wine and dinner and all, the, all that good stuff. And then when we sort of were planning on scheduling the flights and, and seeing a suitable week or weekend, this new normal happened. And I'm sort of anxiously waiting, and this might not be this year, perhaps next year, that it's possible to travel. But at the same time, I also feel that traveling will be so, so different now. It's not the sort of travel that I was used to oh, there's a conference in Amsterdam. Let me hop on a plane on two-hour notice and fly there for a day. But now it's more of a, okay, let's schedule a meeting three months from now, and then we'll spend one day together, and that will be memorable. And I think that will be better for everybody. More, more conscious travel, I hope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So today's episode is Azure Updates from Microsoft Build 2021. So Build... What's your take on that? It's a huge Microsoft event, but do you feel it's only for developers? That's a good question. I, th I think uh, when it originated, when it started out, it was perhaps more for creators or developers. But right now, I mean, if you look at what's being presented, it's everything, it's identity, it's endpoints, it's security, it's uh, Power Platform, it's SharePoint, it's Microsoft 365, it's Azure, there's a bunch of different things. So historically, perhaps a bit more dev focus, and there's still dev focus. But for me, this is a very good place to get to know the latest stuff coming out of Microsoft. And to me, I don't see it very much different from Ignite, to be honest. I use both of these events. I go to both of them now virtually, um, but I, I get the latest feedback and the latest service announcements and you know, the latest thoughts from industry leaders in these different areas that they work with from Microsoft. And I, I don't really distinguish build from, from Ignite in a very big way. There might be some subtle differences. To me, this is a conference that has a lot of stuff and not just for developers. What's your take on, on build? Before we had Ignite, we had TechEd for years and years. And TechEd was more for IT pros at the time. And then we had PDC. It became, was it Windows PDC before? Then it became PDC and then Build. And Build was often, people would, would say, that real devs attend Build and IT pros do Ignite or TechEd. And I visited Build in person a couple of times. The challenge, of course, was that it was in San Francisco or Seattle. So the travel for me from Helsinki to get to Seattle is about 26 to 30 hours with layovers. And then you would be there hugely jet lagged for a conference that lasted two and a half days. And then you fly back 26 or 30 hours. <laughs> And yeah. you go, well, perhaps I could have gotten all of this content by email. So now when it's online or virtual, 
I, I feel it's super easy to just tune in. So build is happening this week that you're listening to the episode as well. So it's it's easier, but with everything else going on at home and at work and hobbies, I, I also feel it's a challenge to find enough time uh, to listen to all of the sessions as they happen, even though I think most of those are pre-recorded. So for me, build is perhaps less visible than, than say Ignite, but the sessions are more in depth often and, and more for devs and, and, and techies as Ignite has a lot more business content nowadays as well. And build doesn't really have that. Yeah. And a lot of, I guess, Ignite also have a lot of the bigger announcements and build is, there can be updates, but yeah, I think the in-depth aspect is, is something I didn't reflect on, but, but I think that might be the case. What I also like is what you mentioned there with two and a half days, you don't go cross-continental from Europe to a conference for two and a half days if it takes that long to get there. Whereas the value add for Ignite in the past and also when we went to, I know you also went to these SharePoint the global SharePoint conference, uh, lasted for five days on site in Vegas or some other location. And when you get five days, it's okay to take 24 hours to get there. But if you spend only two days or two and a half days there, then that's a challenge. But I also like this remote and virtual setup now, you know, juggling with the family and everything and two kids and all the work. Now what I can do is, I can just tune in whenever it fits my schedule and I can attend only the sessions I'm interested in. But what I don't get is the networking. And this is 100% the reason why I always wanted to travel to the conferences, to meet with people, talk with people, sync with some of the speakers, or if you are a speaker yourself, you can sync with the other speakers. So again, it's coming back to the human side of IT again, also for the conferences, same for Build, same for Ignite, same for all the conferences. That's where at least from my, from my point of view, where I got most of my learnings, but also experiences and connections that have served me well throughout my career. If I didn't go to some of those events, I wouldn't have the connections that I have now. So I, I really hope that turns around and we can actually go there in person. So it's less about the content and more about the people for me. I agree on that one. And perhaps when back in, in the days when you didn't really have these sort of events uh, being organized as virtual ones, you would travel and spend the days there really focusing on the content. I, I felt that it was easier to reserve the time. I would commit five days to learn as much as possible and of course to meet with people and spend the evenings at dinners and whatnot. But then when I flew back, I also knew that I'd spend 50, 60, 70 hours during that week just learning, learning, learning as much as I can. And now perhaps it's too easy on an event like Build. I can sit on the sofa, I can open the laptop, I can stream a session, but I can also do a lot of different things at the same time. And switching this context from, from deep learning, if you will, to doing dishes or laundry at the same time, you sort of learn, but it's, it's not consistent, at least for me. And I feel it's, it's much harder now to focus for eight hours on a video as opposed to sitting in a room where a live session takes place. And that's probably the thing also, together with the human connection and the human aspect, is, is that I, what I appreciate in in-person events. Makes sense. So 
On build announcements and the updates, uh, we have a list of, of the most interesting ones. And, and as, as you probably guessed, we'll also put the links in the show notes. So what's top of mind for you from all of the build updates, the announcements that they did this week? So there's a couple of things that sticks out. And I'm going to start with some updates to Cosmos DB. And this is because I know several people that work a lot with Cosmos. I know many people are interested in hearing more about what's going on here. Um, so I've noticed a couple of things that might be interesting to, to know. Uh, one is partial document update, right? And that's where developers now can modify specific fields or properties within a document without requiring a full document read and replace. So if you have a big document, you don't have to get the entire document and replace it you can actually update specific fields or properties within that. And that is available now with the core API, which is the SQL, uh, .NET SDK, Java SDK, and stored procedures. So those are the options for working with that. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I welcome that update. I know several scenarios where this makes sense and where it would be helpful. Uh, another update related to Cosmos is that serverless and we talked about that previously, I think even once or twice in this podcast where uh, the serverless option was in preview. That is now being announced as generally available. So if you are using the serverless option or if you want to use the serverless option, that is now ready for consumption in production workloads. Uh, so that's also good to know. So that's one of the key takeaways I have from build related to uh, to the databases I might be using. Um, another thing, and bear with me, I have a couple of updates here with Cosmos, um, is the Cosmos DB Linux emulator. And some people might think, hey, what do you mean Linux emulator? So what that is, it's a preview feature. And now Linux devs can build, test, and learn on Azure Cosmos DB free and locally on your machine. And that's for Linux machines and Mac OS Machine. So if you're a Mac developer or a developer on an Apple device uh, with Mac OS, you can use the Cosmos DB Linux emulator to emulate the storage. You don't actually need the instance in the cloud, just like the storage emulator for Azure storage tables. So that's pretty cool. So you don't require an Azure subscription for that. They also expanded the free tier for Cosmos DB. So another update, uh, that's now in GA. So for the free tier, you get 1,000 request units per provision throughput uh, and free 25 gigabyte storage per month. And it's important to understand that this is only for one Cosmos DB account for your entire subscription. So it's not per Cosmos DB account because otherwise you would set up 10 accounts or 20 accounts. Uh, but this is for one account inside of your subscription. So that's important to understand. Then a couple of other things related to Cosmos DB that I find interesting is the integrated cache, which is also in preview. So here you can now optimize costs for read-heavy workloads. So often when you build uh, web applications or APIs, or if you build a business application, you have a lot of data that you need to fetch. Sometimes you fetch the same data, and then you don't want to make the same query all the time if you don't need to get real-time read data. So here you have now an integrated cache which is integrated into the Cosmos DB account. So cache is then billed hourly for fixed dedicated compute resources. And that reduces the amount of requests hitting the actual database with operations. And that should in theory result in 
uh, lower cost. So if you hit the database a million times, but you make the same query 20% of the time, you can actually just get that from the cache instead and then not make those 200,000 extra queries. So something that you have perhaps built into your applications, for me, I've already solved that problem because I use Azure Cache for Redis and other type of distributed caching solutions. So I make a request and then I cache it on my server or in my distributed cache or in memory, depending on what type of application. But I really like this because now you can just tick the box and say, you know what, I wanna use the built-in thing that exists in Cosmos DB so I can make use of that cache to save on my bill in the end. And finally, the thing I wanna mention about Cosmos DB is the always encrypted, right? We always talk about security, we talk about data protection and stuff like this. So this is another preview feature so you can encrypt sensitive data inside of the client app before it gets stored in the database. And that's used with the always encrypted for Azure Cosmos DB. So you can ensure confidential parts of your data sets that are only now available to appropriate audiences. And obviously my favorite, it helps with regulatory requirements. So when you use Cosmos DB and secure your data in the cloud, you can tick another box in your Excel sheet or in your uh, form that you get from a vendor asking how do you secure and encrypt the data. So that's a, a pretty cool thing. But I'm just going on and on about updates, uh, you know, about Cosmos DB, but those were probably the main things that I liked about Cosmos DB. There were a few others, but those were the highlights. I really like the Cosmos DB serverless being generally available now. And I've been using it in preview quite often, especially if I need to demo something. Because the challenge for me is that somebody might be asking, hey, Yussi, can you join a meeting this Friday and show XYZ using Cosmos DB as an example? And now it's Monday or Tuesday. So I start building something, but then the meeting on Friday is postponed until next week. And with serverless, I know I don't have to delete everything to save on cost. I can just leave it there, but not consume any of the resources. And then when, when the Friday eventually comes, I already have the solution up and running. So this is probably something that I felt should have been there from the get-go, I think three years ago, when Cosmos DB became available with this name. But now it being generally available, I think it's a, it's a welcome change. So for me, on the updates, um, so Build gets a lot of announcements and some of those are small, some of those are, are large. And I, I try to pick certain items that might not be too evident on, on what sort of things the audience was expecting. So, so here's one that, that caught my interest. GPT-3 now integrates with Power Apps. So why do we talk about Power App? when the whole show we do is about Azure. And the reason here is not because I have a hobby of doing exams on Power Platform now. The reason is that GPT-3 was licensed by Microsoft previously. And that licensed instance runs on Azure. And the license grants Microsoft the ability to integrate GPT-3 with other Azure workloads. And now it also includes Power Apps as part of Power Platform. So GPT-3, it's a massive natural language model. And since Microsoft exclusively licensed that, 
it's it's been more or less fairly closed in the sense that you cannot sign up for a preview unless you get on the, on the wait list. And and the whole point of of integrating GPT three with Power Apps is that you can now build an app with Power App, and instead of doing a search within your app where users can search something and and using the PowerFX formulas, which is the language in Power Apps, you can now use plain spoken questions, just like in Power BI, you've been able to do for a couple of years now. So instead of trying to use a formula to scope out what the user is trying to search, you can simply ask the user, please type in whatever is on top of your mind. And that translates through GPT-3 to your data model. So availability end of June, and seems to be in the announcement that this would be North America only for end of June and the rest of the world later. Oh, very nice. So if, if I understand that correctly with the plain spoken questions, you could build an integration with Alexa or Amazon Echo or you know Sonos or whatever you have, like a voice assistant or Google assistant and say, hey, Google, or whatever assistant you use, and ask a, a, a question in plain language. And then you can use whatever comes back as arguments or something in, in as formulas inside of your Power Apps. So if you build your own kind of workflow for something, you could more easily do that with language recognition. Exactly. That would be one really good uh, use case here. And the point is that if you were to use cognitive services as part of Azure, you would have to train those models first, and that might be time-consuming. With GPT-3, the, the model is already there, and you just need to plug it in and start using it. All right, cool. So on my side, the next episode, sorry, not the next episode, the next update I want to talk about is Azure Bicep. We had an episode on that in episode 20, uh, 79. We talked about what Azure Bicep is and... Uh, it's an alternative to writing ARM templates. So it's essentially an extension where, or on top of ARM, if you want to say, say it like that, where you can, with good typing and good tooling, write your templates and then generate ARM templates based off of the Bicep language. And that's pretty nice. I've used it a bit and I'm starting to like it more and more every day. When I tried it out initially, it was perhaps not entirely production ready in the sense that it could not take all my existing templates and make use of them. So I had to spend quite some time on manually converting them to Bicep and some things were not covered in Bicep. That's some time ago. Some of those things are already taken care of. What I like about uh, Bicep 0.4, which is now out, is they are now providing better linting capabilities. So a linter is a tool like in Visual Studio Code where you get help saying, well, you you made a mistake in writing this thing for whatever that is. So it's a syntax highlighter, if you will. So you, you can get help with whatever you're writing inside of your bicep file. So there's better support for that. And I took a look into the GitHub repository. And this is one of the reasons I really love these open source initiatives that Microsoft has. So in September, 2020, someone asked in GitHub in an issue, if a linter would be possible for Bicep. And on May 10th, which is you know about two weeks ago, this request was moved from in progress to in review for 0.4. So that is also being part of, of that release. So um, perhaps a small update for someone working with 
arm templates and bicep, it might be a big update. So for me, who author quite some templates and make modifications to my templates, this is a welcome update. Anything that will help my experience in, in authoring templates is a good thing. But then again, Bicep is just another small thing I use in my daily arsenal of tools. Uh, you know, it's not the, the one tool I use every day for everything, but all of these updates, they add up and I really like where Bicep is going. So if you're working with Bicep, or if you're working with ARM and you want to take a look at Bicep, now might be a good time because you get better help with the linter as well. It seems to me like Bicep is really picking up uh, in the sense that it's not too long ago that we got the first preview and, and already now they are adding new capabilities and new features in there. And this reminds me a lot of Windows Terminal because when the first preview for that came out, every week we would get new features and functionality with the new weekly builds. So I will definitely spend some time with Bicep this coming summer because I, I feel that once Bicep reaches uh, 1.0, there's so much functionality in there that and if, if you start learning it then, there's simply too much to grasp at the same time. Yeah, and what I really like as a final note on Bicep is already now, Microsoft says on the GitHub repo that this is supported for production use. So just because the version is zero point something does not mean that you cannot use it. So they explicitly say, we support this for production use. If you have issues, file a ticket, we'll take care of it. This is pretty cool. And I think I'll wait for service pack one, just to be safe. <laughs> Might make sense, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, next for me, Logic Apps gets new hosting options and updates. So there's uh, VS Code support coming and something that Microsoft uh, simply states improved performance. And this is for the developer experience. A new standard pricing tier is being introduced. I couldn't yet find any details on that. But what I did find is a blog post from late 2020 with the exact same wording as this week for built for Logic Apps. So to me, it seems that Logic Apps is evolving, especially now it has the new designer since late 2020. But it seems that a lot of performance work has been done. And it's sort of hard to announce something that doesn't make any visible change. You can say, well, it's improved now. There's a better performance. But if you never had any challenges with the performance, for you, it doesn't really change anything. But I'm still happy that they are working on a lot of things with Logic Apps. Um, I, I need to look up the new pricing tier, though, because Logic Apps has been fairly affordable unless you go with the, with the environment. But then again, perhaps the standard pricing tier will introduce some capabilities from the isolated environment setup without you needing to, to upgrade to the premium level. All right, nice, makes sense. So the next update on my side is CAE or Continuous Access Evaluation. This is now in preview for Microsoft Graph. So if you're a developer and you work with Microsoft Graph or if you maintain an Azure ID instance and you want to strengthen your security a bit, might need to look into enabling Continuous Access Evaluation. I really like this. Um, so default access token expiration is usually about 60 minutes, depending on service, of course. And with the continuous access evaluation in Azure AD, 
this gets re-evaluated for active user sessions in real time and can revoke access to protected resources. Uh, for example, in response to events like someone loses their device, you need to block it, or a user password changes and you need to revoke the session, or you need to disable our user account, stuff like that. Usually that takes some time to propagate because this, the token still lives on. So when you change the password, it might not have an immediate effect for the existing and active user might still be using the system and can make successful request until the new token is um, coming into place. Now with continuous access evaluation, that happens more real time. So you can, you can enable that. And if you maintain and you're an administrator maintaining your Azure ID, that's a good thing for you to enable in the sense that you know that the tokens have a shorter time span if needed and can be continuously evaluated. As a developer, however, you need to be aware of this because now you might get new exceptions, right? And I'm going to reiterate that. If you're developing with Microsoft Graph or any of the other services like SharePoint, OneDrive, and Teams, I believe, will also have support for continuous access evaluation. And that's rolling out, I think, uh, in June or July this year to all Azure AD tenants by default unless you opt out. That's how I gathered the, the latest announcement. That was pre-build. So that happened a couple of weeks ago. I read that. But now coming out of build, they also announced that this is now in preview for Microsoft Graph. So if you are a developer, you're working with any of these services, Microsoft Graph, SharePoint, OneDrive, Teams, I think it is, you need to look into how to handle exceptions based on continuous access evaluation. Because if a tenant gets that enabled, and they will, you will get exceptions when a user changes a password or whatever it is. And you can catch those exceptions and you can just request a new token. So if you handle this gracefully in the code, you can just make sure your app keeps working, right? But you need to be aware of that. Otherwise you're gonna have unhandled exceptions that you perhaps did not plan for. But this way, if you're proactive, you can fix it. And there are code examples on Microsoft website. We'll put that in the show notes, how they can look for exceptions. You can, if you're already working with this, you can say, I'm making this request, try catch, catch this type of exception. If it contains these things, that is because it's a continuous access evaluation. And then I need to retry using these parameters. So you will get the help to fix it, but it's very good to understand. So that, that's why I'm kind of reiterating that a couple of times here. So developing for Graph, SharePoint, OneDrive, Teams, stuff like that. Now it's a preview for Microsoft Graph coming out this week. Make sure you can handle continuous access evaluation if you're a developer. And if you're an administrator, make sure you take a look at how to enable that. Anything to strengthen your security is a good thing. C-A-E, the continuous access evaluation. That, I remember reading about that for Azure AD back in November 2020. And I, I really didn't think back then that this would be something for Microsoft Graph as well, but it makes perfect sense. So definitely something to look into both in Azure AD and then in M365 as well. Next on my list is Azure Communication Services gets updates. And I can't recall anymore, but I think we did one episode on Azure Communication Services when it was announced. Was it early last year? We did and, have an episode on that. I don't recall yeah. exactly when, but we, we did talk about it, yeah. 
I, I should have like a printout of all of the episodes, the topics, the links, the jokes we've used so that I can avoid those in future episodes. So the updates, uh, there's a new UI library, and that seems to be based on the new Fluent UI components. So you can use the pre-built composites and components to build a custom solution. And it seems that it's teams like. So the intention here is that, that companies can build custom communication solutions that look a bit like teams or share the same UI elements without needing to custom code those. So this is, this is probably something that we need to test. There's call recording as well, direct routing, meaning that you can connect your Azure communication services based solutions with PSTN, public switch telephone network, meaning legacy telephones and switchboards and whatnot you still have in, in offices. And then an interesting one, traversal using relays around NAT or churn protocol. And I still remember the stun protocol we had before, but churn protocol support is now there. And since it mentions NAT, network address translation, I think this is something that helps you travel uh, between firewalls, especially with private IP addresses. And the last one, uh, uh, the calling interface gets an SDK for Universal Windows Platform, and that's in preview. And I haven't really used Universal Windows Platform in a year or two anymore, but there's still a lot of need for this for Xbox, the HoloLens, IoT, all sorts of different uses, perhaps outside the web usage. And now there's an SDK also for embedding the communication services capabilities into these different platforms. All right, nice. I never built anything using UWP, I think, at least not something that I used in production. But I, I understand the use case here, and I like the updates coming for Azure Communication Service as well. It seems like there's a lot of things coming around the communication service. So I really hope to see some really great use cases in the future where people make use of it and to see what they build, because I, I have a lot of ideas for what I would like to build, but obviously that's not what I do for a living. So I hope so. someone else will do some really cool things around that. The next update on my side is about Azure Confidential Ledger. So that's now in preview. And the reason I you know, raised my eyebrows for this is because it mentions the ledger and that's what the uh, cryptocurrency blockchains are based on, where you like have a public ledger, you cannot manipulate records, anything that goes into the ledger stays there forever. So with ACL, which is what they're calling it, which to me is an access control list, but ACL in this case is Azure Confidential Ledger is a new managed service instance in Azure. It's in preview and it provides you a tamper-proof register for storing sensitive data for like record keeping and auditing. So it is one of the only ledger technologies that use confidential computing to protect the data in use. And the reason why that is important is that data in use or in memory can contain sensitive data, including digital certificates, encryption keys, intellectual property, PII, stuff like that. Now, with confidential computing, that means that that is also protected in process and in memory. So that's, I guess, where the name Azure Confidential Ledger comes from, because it's based on confidential computing. 
So if you do build highly sensitive things and you need to really protect everything that happens, this might be a, a thing to look into. And you have a worm model, which is write once, read many. And they have a worm guarantee here. So write once, read many guarantee, making data non-erasable and non-modifiable. So when the data goes in there, it's there to stay. Just like if you look in the Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency ledger, you can see that this transaction happened from this address to that address using these parameters and these values and whatever. That cannot be changed. That is always in there. And that's how the entire blockchain works. Now, in this case, it's obviously not Azure blockchain. It's not the blockchain technology, but the idea of a ledger is the same as you use in, in, for example, cryptocurrencies. And I'm mentioning that only because if someone dabbled a little bit in cryptos, maybe you can relate to how a ledger works. So with that, you get verifiably authentic logs through evidence, which can be universally validated. So if you do have super sensitive data, you need to ensure that nobody can mani manipulate your data, your audit logs, whatever you have. You can use this because you write that audit log once, cannot be bonified. This is what happened at this time in place, uh, at this point in time, by this user in this system with these parameters, period. There is no modification of that data. So with ACL or Azure Confidential Ledger, you can help ensuring that no tampering ha happens uh, or occurs on the ledger or the data. So it's, it's an interesting service. So I wanted to bring that up in case someone has ideas for how you would use that. I currently have a couple of things that come to mind with audit logs and record keeping um, for compliance and regulatory compliance requirements and stuff like that. But there's already so many things built into Azure with the Azure Audit Log and, and Microsoft 365 Compliance Center and whatever. So I'm using some of those tools already, but it would be really cool to hear if there's anyone tuning in now saying the confidential ledger or just any type of ledger for that matter would fit my build perfectly because I would love to hear the use cases. Perhaps you would even want to come on the show and, and do an episode of that later. But I really like the, the service announcements here and definitely an interesting space, definitely something I will keep an eye on. So it's been at least 25 years since I last heard the term warm, write once, read many. Because when we had CD-ROMs come for, for home PCs, was that in 1991 or so? That's when we used that term. So I'm, I'm really happy to see these old, old school legacy terms coming back with a modern twist. Perhaps so you will be disappointed that they didn't mention DVDs or CD-ROMs yeah, along yeah. with the service, though. Azure Confidential Ledger, now with CD-ROM support. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so last one for me. Uh, Visual Studio and VS Code get an extension for Power Platform. And again, with Power Platform here. But the thinking here is that when you want to create custom connectors for Power Platform, meaning that perhaps you're building a power app or a power automate based automation, and that needs to connect to a custom data source. So you build your custom connector, which in essence is an API, and then you need to publish that. There's an ability to publish those APIs in Azure API management, but it's, it's a manual process. There's a lot of clicking, a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of figuring out why it's not working or what the security settings are. So I hope, I, I haven't had a chance yet to try it out, but I hope that the extension helps 
in, in doing those cumbersome steps that you would otherwise have to do manually. And there's also a power platform CLI coming out. And I'm not sure how that works. So I'm anxiously now waiting for those bits to land so that I can actually try those out. And also, if you use Power Apps portals, which is the sort of anonymous access service for Power Apps apps uh, that you can host on top of Power Platform, that will also have VS Code support for configuration and the CLI support, but not for implementation because there's no code in essence that you push in there. So the Visual Studio and VS Code support for Power Platform, I, I think this is the first few steps in connecting developers with Power Platform. And, and I'm especially happy to see the Azure API management angle here and, and hope that it will really help a lot of people in figuring out how to create those custom connectors. I like that. Uh, I never heard about Power, Power Platform CLI perhaps because I actually did not monitor a single Power Platform announcement during build either. But I like to see that, you know, there's a CLI for everything these days and it makes things uh, a lot easier to manage, at least for me. I use the Azure CLI, Microsoft 365 CLI, and a bunch of different other CLIs as well on a daily basis. So it's easy for me to write my automation scripts and stuff like that based on that. So I will take a look at this as well. Good update. Cool. I, I think that was all of the updates we had. And obviously, Build has a lot of announcements, but we tried to pick the most interesting ones here. And we'll put all of the links in the show notes on everything we mentioned today. Yeah. Uh, so there's one thing remaining, and that's the unexpected question uh, that I will ask UC today. So this is obviously the most important thing of the episode. Of course. So... You know, there's only one right answer to this. <laughs> if you could swim in any liquid, what would it be and why? Oh, this is a tough one. So first I need to figure out what constitutes or classifies as a liquid. But thinking of this, uh, this was maybe five, six years ago. I was flying to Seattle for Microsoft MVP Summit. And Iceland Air had uh, a discount offer that if you fly to Reykjavik and do a layover of a long weekend there and then continue to Seattle, it was much cheaper than flying semi-direct to Seattle. So I took my family with me. We flew to Reykjavik. It's only four hours from Helsinki. And we spent the weekend in Iceland. And what we did, we rented a car for two days and, and went around the island. And we stopped at the Blue Lagoon. And at the time, I did not know this, but the Blue Lagoon is man-made. So, so it's artificial, even though it feels really natural. And the liquid that where, where you're swimming in there, it's a mix of seawater, but also fresh water that's pumped from the power plant. And I think that's a geothermal power plant. And it's 55% seawater and 35% fresh water. So I'd like to swim in liquid that would be like the one you have in Blue Lagoon, 55% seawater and 35% to 40% fresh water. But the Blue Lagoon water is, is really milky. You cannot see it through because it's very high in silica. And that, that makes the mud that you can put on your face in there. 
So to answer this question, I'd like to swim in a liquid like they have in Blue Lagoon in Iceland, but without the silica, meaning no mud, just clear water, but something that feels the same. All right. That interesting answer. Not what I expected, uh, <laughs> but makes sense. And I, I can relate. I have also been in the Blue Lagoon on Iceland in Reykjavik. Um, so I can relate. It was a nice feeling. Um, and I went there without my glasses. So even though I couldn't see through the water, I actually could not see anything at all. So it didn't make any difference for me. Interesting answer. Good answer. I was expecting perhaps Prosecco or Amarone, <laughs> something like that. Might also be enjoyable to swim in, but you could also just die from that. So perhaps your option was a better one. Indeed, indeed. And perhaps I, I could have a glass of Prosecco or Champagne while swimming in there. And, and we need to put a note on this that perhaps a year or two from now, we'll pack our, our travel gear and we fly to Iceland. We go to the Blue Lagoon and we sit in the lagoon and do a recording of the episode, really just to experience it again. I think we should do that. I will pin a date in your calendar right now. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So as always, this was fun. Thank you for tuning in. And since Build is still happening this week, Enjoy the rest of the sessions and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.